called Our Values. And it's really in Mark's Gospel, essentially verse by verse. But today we come to the second thing. Last week was about uh, being Jesus-centered. What we mean by that is really being saying that everything we do, everything that we're about, is about Jesus making Him central to our lives, becoming His disciples, acknowledging His Lordship, and really that being a foundation. And remember, if you were here last week, we said that, that these values for our church are sort of like super glue. It, it's what binds us together as a community. And if you're brand new or you, perhaps you've been visiting saying, what is City Church? This is a great series for you to be here to hear and say, hey, what is City Church? This is what we're about. But sort of like the, the bind that uh, the super glue causes, it's a bit of a bind that I feel like we're in as a, uh, as a people because of what we're talking about today, which is community. And the reason why I say that is because all of us want community. Yeah? And you don't have to be particularly religious to get that, to understand that, of course. We're made for it. We sense it. If you look at our television shows and movies, you see this. Going back to the 80s when I was a kid, there was a show called Cheers. Any Cheers fans out there back in the day? Right? And remember, remember what the sub, subtitle was? You want to go where everybody knows your name. Right? No more singing for me. That's it. But, hey, you want to go. Because, you know, a place where you're known. There literally is a bar called Cheers, by the way, in Boston you know, that it's based on. And then you get into late 80s and the 90s. You get shows like Seinfeld. You get uh, Friends, of course. And then you get into Modern Family and some of the more recent ones. And you can see that there's this driving theme in our culture. If you really want to know where is culture, look at television shows in particular around families and communities. That really tells you a lot about where we are as a culture. And then, of course, movies. Right? tells a lot about our desire for community. Of course, Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, some of you are like, again? He mentioned Lord of the Rings again. You can bring the counter back to zero. It'll be another, who knows, few weeks before you hear another reference. Uh, but remember, Samwise and Frodo. I mean, what a beautiful community. Then the Fellowship of the Ring, after all. Like, we're, we're just designed for it. We're drawn to it. We're hardwired for it. Which leads to what we're going to talk about today. How do we get, or really, how do we close the gap between our yearning for community and actually experiencing real community. Here's the graphic. It's on our, in our foyer there. But this is what you've seen as you walk in now. I know you can't probably read that subtitle to real community, so let me read it for you. We don't exist solely for ourselves, but to share life in God's kingdom with each other through struggle and joy, tears and laughter. It's getting more granular, isn't it? Wow, this is what community looks like. Struggle, joy, tears, laughter sharing of ourselves. That's what we're going to look at today. And so let me give you a premise that we're going to work from today, and it's this. Your spiritual well-being is directly connected to your understanding of vital community. In other words, what you believe horizontally is also true what you believe vertically and vice versa. Like you cannot separate two sides of the same coin. You cannot say, oh, I want God in my life, and I want to yearn for Him, and then not to practice vital community. In fact, let's put this on the screen next here. If you want to grow deep with God, you must grow deep with God's people. If you want to grow deep with God, you've got to learn how to grow deep with God's people. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage is a beautiful picture of that. You know, we say right there in our foyer as you come in, joining God as family on mission for the renewal of all things. I know we all have different experiences of family. But my guess is when you read this passage, when you heard it read, you said, man, that's a community I would love to be part of. What a place of joy. What a place of belonging. But can we get there? Well, I want to suggest three things are required. That's how we're going to look at this passage. We say, what's required for real community? Three things. Number one, devotion. That's what we're going to look at first here. Let's just jump right in for the sake of time. 
What is devotion? Look at verse 42 with me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I realize that we've not been in the book of Acts in a while. Uh, So what happens in chapter 1 is that Jesus ascends. But as he ascends into heaven on the other side of the resurrection, he says, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. And of course, at Pentecost, we preached on that just a few months ago. At Pentecost, uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in, in a profound and beautiful way. And there's a, a festival that's happening in Jerusalem at the time called the Feast of Weeks. And in, in the Festival of Weeks, people from all over uh, Judaism, all over the Greco-Roman Empire, in fact, have come to Jerusalem for this festival. And then Pentecost happens. And we're told in verse 41 that as a result of Peter preaching, I mean, Peter was not a born preacher. He was a fisherman. He didn't have a week to prepare a sermon like I do. But man, was it impactful. 3,000 people, we're told in verse 41, 3,000 people came to faith. All these God-fears that are there in Jerusalem, they, they convert because of Pentecost, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So suddenly, you have a potential megachurch in Jerusalem. Now, what you see in verses 42 through 47 is actually what happens as a result of those 3,000 coming to faith. They form a church. Now, let me give you a definition of of devotion. This is my definition. It is to develop a persistent rhythm in your life. A persistent rhythm in your life. There are two components. Let me mention the first one. Persistence. When I was in sixth grade, sixth grade, when I was six years old, actually, my mother made me take piano. And I, I, you can see how I phrased that, where I'm going. Like, I was not a fan of piano. Now, my mom was. She, she played growing up. She you know, when she was growing up, and then as I was growing up, she was playing all the time, okay? And, and so she was hopeful that I would develop the same passion, and I didn't. And so after six or nine months of, of getting, getting the, uh, you know, the training and, you know, going to a piano class, I was like, Mom, I just don't have it. I'm sorry. I don't have a musical bone in my body. And she's like, okay, to her credit, she's like, that's fine. Thank you for giving it a try, that sort of thing. You ever been, been there before? Like, you, you try something, you're like, I just don't have it. Well, that takes persistence, right? Like, if you did grow up playing a musical instrument, and you enjoy especially playing a musical instrument, it probably actually, at some point, you're like, I, I, you know, you're persistent. Like, I want to do this. The word devotion, by the way, can also mean set apart. And so just as we set apart time for our hobbies, as we set apart time for the things that, that bring passion to our lives. Right? Those are the easy things that we devote our time and our energy to. So there's persistence. But the other part of that is rhythm. Now, you know this, that here at City Church, we do not normally get into the details of, well, here's what it says in the Hebrew, here's what it says in the Greek. And if we do that, you know it's pretty critical. Well, I'm about to do that here. So the tense of the verb here in the Greek is what's called the aorist tense. And that's a fancy way of saying something that happens over and over and over again. In other words, when it says they devoted themselves, and then they list those four things that we're about to mention here, it means it was not just a one-off event. These are things that were happening over and over and over again. In fact, we're told later on here in just a few verses that it was daily for them in some instances. But look, it matters what you devote yourself to. It really does. Several years ago, there was an article in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution And it was entitled this, Extreme Fans Say There's No Problem. Extreme Fans Say There's No Problem. 
And, and it, what they were doing, of course, was they were looking at, at people who are really addicts of sports. They're enthusiasts through and through. But it's impacted their relationships, not always in a positive way. Well, there's this one guy from Chicago that they interviewed. His name was Bobby Klepak. Bobby Klepak. And he was a massive, underline the word, a massive Chicago Bears fan. The Bears. Okay, so some of you got that. All right, so, <laughs> so listen to what the article says. Bobby Klepak is a Bears fan who has, in six years, he's never missed a single play they've run. His devotion has cost him some relationships. A former girlfriend once told him she felt second best to the Bears. His reply? No. You come third. It's the Bears, it's the White Sox, and then it's you. <laughs> right? It's possible. It's possible to be devoted to the wrong thing, or at least in a way that interferes with your relationships. See, we're all by nature devoted to something. What were they devoted to? Well, we're told, and, and sometimes this next section is referred to as the four marks of the church. In other words, these are the four things that if you don't have these four things, you don't have a gospel-centered church. Here are the four. The first one is apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Now, really, that's what we talked about last week, being centered on Jesus. Now, remember, back then, all they had, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had were the apostles at this time. And so the apostles were, were who had walked with Jesus. Uh, they lived with Jesus, right? The, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This became the proclamation. This is the sermon of Peter in verses 40 and behind that. And so... They devoted themselves to listening day in and day out to the apostles' teaching. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to say much more than that other than to say this. Most of us today love to learn. And, and, and when we learn in a Western education sense, we learn to master something. Right? We have what are called master's degrees to prove that. But what was true about them? They learned in order to be mastered. The dedication... The apostles' teaching was to say, I want you to be Lord of my life. And it changed and transformed them. And it led to the other three things that, that take place here. The next one it says is the fellowship. Now, the word there is quanonia in the Greek. It means to hold in common. But there's a definite article. The fellowship. In other words, this is not just, hey, well, let's go hang out at a bar later on, a drinking hall. This is, this is the fellowship. This is gathering on the Sabbath. This is what the reference is. The fellowship, the gathering. They held things in common. They held each other in unity, in essence, is what that means. Let me say a couple more things about that, because I think this one is really important, because we're going to do a deeper dive here in a second. There's a whale of a difference between uh, your, your average voluntary association and what the church is. Uh, you know, growing up, I remember there were, uh, you know, parking lots in the suburbs that you would see these classic car gatherings, hobby enthusiasts, you know what I'm talking about, where it's a Friday or Saturday night, and everyone who drives a certain kind of car from a certain era they gather together. I know I'm speaking your language here, David. And so, right, you know, they just gather together. Now, what do they have in common? They love cars. And they love a certain type of car at that. It's a voluntary association. But generally speaking, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, that's, that's the only thing that they have in common, maybe, but they don't do a lot beyond that. They gather together once a month for, for classic cars and to enjoy the rev the engines, that sort of thing. We can think of other associations, of course, like other hobbies, other things, gardening clubs, book clubs, and so forth. But here's the thing about this association. It was voluntary, yes, but it was so different. Why? 
notice something about Pentecost and why Pentecost is so important in this passage. There were people from all over the known world, the Greco-Roman world. And we know this because of the names of the other people that are mentioned in the book of Acts that were gathered there for Pentecost and what happened after that, like this passage. We know that there are people from North Africa. They're from what we call the Middle East today. They're from Asia and Europe. Like they're from all over. They were poor. They were rich. Culturally, they're very different from each other. They had virtually nothing in common except for God. And what happened next is profound. And I want to say that, that this is important to understand about Christianity. If you're here especially and you're saying, how is Christianity different from other religions? How is Christianity distinctive or how should it be distinctive and unique? I want you to really hear this. Written into the very fabric of Christianity is a yearning for diversity and overcoming barriers that keep us from diversity. What do I mean by that? When I was in India, uh, I remember the first, I've been to India several times, but, but in India, even though on the books legally you don't have the caste system anymore, culturally you do. And the lowest caste are what are called the Dalits. Now the Dalits are the untouchables. They're working out their karma. And you're not to touch them. You're not to mess with them because obviously they really screwed it up royally in the past life. And, and they've, got to, they've got to pay the price, sort of thing like that. And so what you have is a radical inequality between what are called the Brahmin caste, the higher caste, and the Dalits. Now, they're both Hindu, right? The Brahmins and the Dalits are both Hindu. But what we're seeing happen, especially in the last 50 to 60 to 70 years, especially since the time of Mother Teresa and what she did, by orphaning orphanages and, and the other places of hope and service in Calcutta, what we're seeing is the Dalits are converting in mass to Christianity. And here's what's remarkable about that. Written into the very fabric of Christianity is the belief that the Dalit and the wealthy entrepreneur can worship together in the same place. That doesn't happen in anywhere else. In fact, even in secularism here in the West, that doesn't happen. Most people congregate with people just like themselves. If you're highly intellectual, you tend to con- congregate with people that are highly intellectual. Uh, if, you, if you're of a certain uh, socioeconomic class, you tend to congregate with people of a certain socioeconomic class. But again, written to the very fabric of Christianity is this belief that we should be able to worship across racial lines, across uh, social class lines, culture, politics, and so forth. Now, does every church do that perfectly? Of course not. In fact, even this church, a few chapters later, begins to to really struggle with this. And what you see is that Paul, when you get to uh, the church of Corinth, remember that there's this one scene where they're taking the Lord's communion, but the wealthy are are taking it by themselves apart from the poor, and they're getting first dibs on the bread and the wine. And Paul takes them to the task. And in another instance where where Peter is, is disassociating, he's disfellowshipping, with the Gentiles who are being converted one after another after another, and Paul takes him to task, remember? And he says, this should not be. This is not the gospel. See, even though Christians get it wrong, Jesus shows us what it means to get it right. He shows us this is written in the very fabric and the very cosmos of our faith. It's the strength of the fabric. And that's what we're seeing here. They're committed. Now, the third thing, for the sake of time, I've got to keep going on here. The breaking of bread. This is, this is communion. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the reference to worshiping together again on the Sabbath, which leads to the last thing there, and that is the prayers. Notice that it didn't say uh, they're devoted to prayers. It says the prayers. This is liturgy. 
Again, all four of these, you can see where this is going. They're committed here to worship. Oh my gosh, like the importance of the prayers. Um, you know, I, I rejoice that even this morning over in our offices at 9 a.m., Brady Shackelford was leading a group in prayer. And I love the fact that we're seeing more and more of you come and pray. Come and pray for this worship service. Come in and pray for this church and for our city and beyond. We just got back from our annual staff retreat. And we spent two days praying for roughly between six and seven hours. We just prayed. And we prayed and we prayed heaven down. And, and most of that was together. We kept praying. We, we kept praying for the future of this church. Praying for our leadership. Most of you in this room were prayed for by name by the staff this weekend. Like if we, we have to be a church of prayer. And this is what the first church was. It was a church dedicated to prayer as well. These are the four marks of the church. And here's the takeaway. This community was gathered together all the time. That's what verse 46 says. Remember, it says this, And day by day, there you go, the rhythm, the persistent rhythm, attending the temple together, because they didn't have local churches, not yet, and breaking bread in their homes, hospitality. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. The very character of these people was joyful and generous. Like I said, wouldn't you want to be part of a community like that? Man, just to be a fly on the wall, how remarkable would that be? I can't stress enough the importance of being here physically. Christianity is an embodied faith. It's an incarnational faith. You know, we struggled, didn't we? A lot of us in this room, we struggled three years ago in the pandemic. It was three years ago this month. In fact, just this weekend, I think, three years ago that we reopened our services. It was hard, wasn't it, being apart from each other? But you know what we learned when we turned live stream on and invited people to come back? We found out that a lot of people were like, I think I'm just going to stay home in my PJs. <laughs> and I get it. Like, it was nice for a few months there just with my family enjoying cinnamon rolls in front of the TV. But let me tell you, you know the difference between watching a concert on TV and attending a concert. You know that, that standing in front of, or sitting in front of a TV in your comfy couch and listening to songs being sung, you know, as well as I know, that there's a disconnect built into that. It's the reason why, by the way, we turned off live stream. And I can't tell you the number of people who came up to me and said, thank you for turning it off. Because if you hadn't, we wouldn't have returned. You see, we knew that what, we, what it means to be a church is we have to be together. Now, you may be thinking that I'm about to wag a finger at you and say, well, you better be here every Sunday. I'm not going to do that. Because that's a terrible way to motivate people. You know, terrible guilt is a terrible way to do it. It's so anti-gospel. It, it, you know, duty, obligation, terrible ways to, to motivate people. Let me tell you why you should be here. Because there's something here that you can't get anywhere else. That's all I want to tell you. I just want to invite you to be here every Sunday. Say, there's something here that I need. And as we're going to see in a second, it's not just on Sunday. But there's something at the four marks. I can't get that at home. I need God's people. God primarily, I believe this, God primarily, friends, speaks to us through community. The older I get, the more I see that. Primarily how He shapes us, how He meets our needs, how He changes and transforms us as He places us in a community, in an embodied place. So I want to encourage you to come and live that out with me. Don't just come because it's my office and I'd like you to come to my office. Like, just come because there's something going on here that you can't get anywhere else. 
is what I say. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is not a new problem. This is human nature. This happened 2,000 years ago. So this is a starting point. But let me tell you, it's just the starting point. Why? Because you can come here Sunday after Sunday and just be part of what we're doing for a couple hours and that's it. And you go home and that's the only thing you do. It's just the starting point. Here's the second thing, very importantly. Sacrifice. What's required for real community? Devotion. But then secondly, sacrifice. Scott, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, it's how you go deeper. It's how you get to the real community. Look at verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's what's going on. They're increasing community by increasing their commitment. Let me say that again. They're increasing their experience of community by experiencing an increase in commitment. But let me tell you, you know what's also true about that? It's increasingly difficult as well, isn't it? Let me give you two reasons why. I think these are ancient reasons as well as modern reasons, but let me give you two reasons why I think it's so hard. Number one, especially for us in particular, I would say that we live in a culture that is increasingly privatized and individualized. It's privatized. We, we, we hold back, but it's individualized. And so there's just a, a pension. I think at COVID, let's be honest, COVID just accelerated that, that movement. Would you say that's true? Like we kind of circled the wagons together and, and it wasn't family on mission. Family was our mission. And, you know, so we circled the wagons and, and, uh, and we, we, we hide ourselves, we protect ourselves. And, and I think honestly, all of us, myself included, we're struggling still a few years later because our, it just accelerated the movement of our culture more and more in that trajectory, more and more in that direction. That's the first thing. But here's the second thing. And it's the nature of possessions themselves. Uh, we possess many things, but it's always been said that those things possess us. But the question becomes, who's possessing who, right? <laughs> like, uh, do we possess? Do we control? Do we have those things? Or do those things possess us? What I mean by that is, are we owners of what we have? Or are we stewards or managers of what we have? Over the years, I've known a number of people who have had their, their full-time job is to manage the wealth of wealthy families. Can you imagine? Like, I, we've had several people here at City Church over the years. I've had other friends elsewhere. And that's their role. And, and so what they do is that there's a, there's a philosophy of giving that these wealthy families have. They have a fund, and, and so they say, look, here's how much we're going to give away to these various causes. And so your role, sir or ma'am, is to, is to take um, our giving philosophy and then to take our wealth and discern where to put it, to steward it well. But can you imagine if one of those guys said, I'm the owner. Yeah, I'm not going to give there. I'm going to hold on to it for myself. Well, well, you'd have a job, wouldn't you? The family would be like, no, no, that's not why you were hired. You were hired to give it away. You were hired to manage it, to steward it in these directions. You see, all of us in here have to discern and decide, are we owners or are we stewards of everything that we have? Time, talent, treasure. Do you realize that even time itself, it's easy to maybe quantify treasure, money, but even your time is a gift. Your, your, your talents certainly are a gift from God. And so that means by design that you are a manager. 
You, by design, are a steward. God has given you a life, and He's given you time, He's given you talent, and He's given you treasure for the purpose of, of stewarding it for the kingdom of God. This is just written into the very fabric of this, this passage as we're seeing here. Now, with that in mind, let me talk to you just for a second about generosity and what's required. Because what we see in this passage are three things that's required to be the generous church that this first church was. Three things. Here's the first one. It's all in verse 45, by the way. First thing is it says at the very end of verse 45 that they would sell all their possessions or their belongings, possessions, as, and then it says at the very end, as any had need. Now, that's really important. We can blow right past that and miss something here. They knew what the need was. Now, the reality is, because of our privatized culture, our individualized culture, it is really easy culturally to hide our needs. Would you agree with that? It's really easy. I think, like I said, post-COVID, I think it's even easier than it's ever been. Part of what is true about need, this this may sound crazy to you, but I really believe it's true. The first step in generosity isn't the giver, it's the recipient. That's what this passage, I think, is saying. It is to say, man, I've got a real need, and I'm not going to hold on to it myself. It's a financial need. It's an emotional need. It's a mental health need. It's my need in my work situation. I have a need to have questions answered about what is Christianity. I mean, it's countless and deep, all the different types of needs. And so built, written into the fabric of community is vulnerability. Part of what it means is that you and I need to be vulnerable with our true needs. If you're in a hard place in your marriage, you need to tell someone about that. You can't hold on to that. You're in a hard place in your singleness. Talk to someone about that. We say this every week that we long as pastors and shepherds, and not just the pastors on staff, not just our elders, by the way, but our community group leaders, our DNA group. Like we long to say, man, what, how can we assist? How can we come alongside? So the first thing I want you to see, the first step in generosity is saying, I have a need. And I need to share that with my community. That's what we see here at this first community. But here's the second thing, and that is, of course, resources. And so if there is a need, we have to believe by faith if God sits on his throne, that there are resources out there to meet the need. If God really does love his people, if God really is for his people, that means that when you become vulnerable, when you begin to share your need with this congregation, you have to trust by faith. We all have to believe by faith that there are resources within this congregation to meet that need. And I really do believe that. I really do believe that if we knew truly our places of shame, our places of vulnerability, the places where we're saying, I can't do this alone, I fully and truly trust and believe because of the nature of this congregation, what I've seen for years, that every single need would be met in this congregation. There is so much potential in this room, so much potential in this room, which leads here to the last thing about how do you get to generosity? You have to desire to sacrifice. You see, you can know there's a need. You can have the resources to meet that need. That doesn't mean the need is met until you desire sacrifice. Here's the definition of sacrifice. It is to count the cost. It doesn't matter how poor, how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter, not just in in financial terms, but also in time and talent. It doesn't matter. The point is, whenever you give anything away, there's a cost involved. And and so written, what's what's profound to me, the context here, is that these Jewish people who are living now in the promised land, after thousands of years, what we're told elsewhere in the book of Acts, what they were doing when it says they were selling their possessions, you know what that possession primarily was, or a lot of times you know what it was? Land. In other words, the most important thing in Judaism, land, was what they were willing to give away. 
That is profound. No wonder, no wonder people were saying, who is your God? The Jewish people who were saying, you're doing this to ensure that, that there's no poor among you? You're, you're selling the land and, and giving the proceeds away? Yes. What's required to know the need? What's required is to, to have the resources and then finally the desire to sacrifice, to give that away. Let me, tell, let me, let me show you why that's so important. I'm going I'm to put on the screen here a riddle. Okay? Now, now I know there, are a lot of, there aren't a lot of kids in here, so I'll, but you know, kids, don't tell your siblings if they're not here. So parents, I want you to bring this riddle home to your kids and see what they think. This is a great opportunity to teach, right? Here's the question. When is the only time a gift isn't a gift? Okay? When is the only time a gift... Anyone have an idea? Here's a riddle. No, you're like, there's no way I'm going to talk about this right now in the middle of your sermon, Scott. Here's the answer. When it isn't given. It, when it isn't given. Like, if I have a gift, it's Christmas time, and I have a gift, and I wrap it up, and I sit it in front, and then right before you're about to get it, I take it away, and I said, nah, I'm going to hold on to it myself. And you're like, what gives? Pun intended there. Uh, what's going on? You'd be like, that's wrong. Like, you, you, you have a gift, but you're going to hold on to yourself? Listen, that's the riddle that we need to solve. You realize how many, what the gifts that we have in this room? I am so excited about by the team that Reed Smith is one of our elders has put together. Along with Anna Henson, I see a number of you in this room, MC, Trevor, uh, David Drexler, a bunch of you and a few others are on that team. And, and what that team has been thinking about, for months Reed has been thinking about this, and that is how do we, how do we unleash the potential of this congregation? How do, we, how do we know what our gifts are? I think there's an assumption that we can all make that, oh, they know what their gifts are, au contraire. When I was 23 years old, our mother church perimeter, that's where I was at the time, and I took a spiritual gifts class there, and it changed the trajectory of my life. That's the reason why I'm a pastor today. And going through that class, I realized, like, it was very clear. The assessment tool showed me. It's like, man, this is the direction that you need. And, man, I, I experienced a calling that day. And a matter of two years later, I was in seminary. And, and so, in part, it was a spiritual gifts assessment that allows me to be here with you today. I think about that. Reed is thinking about that. The team is thinking about that. What is the potential to unleash in this congregation? To know our spiritual gifts, to unleash the potential of our congregation. You see, part of what it means to, to know the need and then resource the need is alignment. Like, uh, we want to know what are your gifts so that we can align the best of who you are that where it's most easy for you to be passionate about. We want to align that with the needs of the community and not just the needs of this initial community, but the outward community. More on that in a second. Like, can you imagine, like, like, is it possible for us to be this kind of church? I think so. And I, I, I want to say this, I've seen, we've tasted, we've seen this over the years. I've, I've been here longer than any of you because I was the founder of this church. And let me tell you, like, I've seen it. I've tasted it. You have to. We're just asking for more of it, right? To lean less in our staff and more into our volunteers. And to say, man, we, we, need, to be, we need to be just leaning into our people and saying, man, bring the best of who you are, your time, your talent, your treasure, Right? And, yeah, I mean, tithing, by the way, is not just financial. Do I believe in tithing? Absolutely. I believe the minimum is 10% financially. I mean, just, I'm going to say it right now. If you're, if you're a regular attender of this church, please be giving financially to this church. We, we need that. 
in order to carry on the, some of the missions. So please, we ask of you kindly from a place of grace and mercy to be part of that with us. But not just that, but also time and talent. Some of you are richer in time and talent than you are in treasure. What is it that God might be calling you to be part of? Which leads here to what I want to say next, and that is beyond Sunday, right? And so why is it that, uh, why is it that I can stand before you with, with a bold humility and ask you, and really, honestly, to demand of you more? Oh, did you just say that, Scott? Oh, yeah, I did. How can I say that? Here's why. Because Jesus Christ would never ask anything of you that he himself did not already give. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's another way to define, in closing, sacrifice. It is to intentionally disadvantage yourself in order to advantage someone else. It is to intentionally disadvantage yourself so that you might intentionally advantage someone else. And let me tell you, when we do that, there is joy, which leads here to the last thing. Hebrews 12, too, you know, I love to say it, I repeat it all the time, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't say, oh, Father, I know, I made a vow, I made a promise, oh, duty, I know, I need to do this. No, he said, for the joy set before him. Do you see the difference there? And let me tell you, when you give generously in your time and your talent and your treasure, not from a place of duty or obligation, but because Jesus Christ disadvantaged himself for you, he advantaged you for all of eternity, and you say, how can I possibly hold anything in my life back for the nations? I trust him that if he would give me eternal life, if he would so advantage me like that, will he not care for me if I disadvantage myself with my time and my talent? My treasure. Will he not more than make up for that? You know how he makes up for that? Here's the last thing. The third thing. Remember, there's devotion, there's sacrifice, there's the third thing. What's required for real community? Joy. It leads to that. You say, well, isn't that kind of an outcome? Yeah, it is. It's both. It's required for real community, but it's also the outcome. Unity, joy. These sorts of things are, are part of it. Look at verses 46 and 47. And we already looked at 46, but it says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And then what's the same verse 47? Praising God and having favor with all the people. That means outside the church as well. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to see there, and I want you to underline that word in your mind, if not in your notes, the word praising God. The outcome was praise. It's also what generated their generosity, but it was also the outcome. This Wednesday, I'm taking my middle, middle girl, uh, Carly, I'm taking her to see The National. Uh, we, we love the music of The National. It's at Chastain Park. And let me tell you, like, there will be uh, thousands of other people there with us and, you know, enjoying that. I, I saw an article uh, about, um, about uh, Taylor Swift and like, just the, the billions of that she's bringing in for herself, of course, but, but also just like the joy that she's bringing in. You even see that with Barbie, the movie. Our family went and saw that last night, minus me. Uh, it was late. I couldn't go. Uh, but, you know, but like people are like into it, dressing in pink and so forth. Like there's a shared experience element. And when you're, when you're enjoying something, you want to share it with other people. Just like at a concert. You want to share the moment. 
Like when the eclipse happened on our roof a few years ago, staff, we got up there and we said, man, look at that. Well, don't literally look at it. But, I mean, you know, you'll go blind. But, you know, my gosh, how cool is that? Are you standing in front of an amazing waterfall or a mountain and so forth? Isn't it so much better to have people with you when you see that? When you, when you, when you really see beauty, you can't hold on to it yourself. You've got to share it with other people. And that's why this community, it says day by day, more people are coming to faith. Because they were saying to the people around them, look at what God is doing. Look at verse 43. In fact, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They're saying, how awesome is your God. I went in on that. Part of what, part of what we're longing for, the leaders of this church, part of what we're longing for is that we would become a more outward-facing church. And again, because of what I said about the pandemic, I think the not just our church, by the way, this is true for pretty much any church, any pastor I've talked with about this. And this is true of our culture in general because we're more insulated. Like, it's tougher and tougher. Like, and it's, come, it's easier and easier to just take care of ourselves. But man, this city desperately needs you. This city desperately needs your voice. It desperately needs your time, your talent, and your treasure. And so not just this church family, but beyond these church walls, between the Sundays, this, this city desperately needs city church to live to its potential, to live to its calling. I want to share this graphic with you here. Actually, let me give you the N.T. Wright quote first. Uh, when Jesus' followers behave like this, they sometimes find to their surprise that they have a new spring in their step. There is an attractiveness and the energy about a life in which we stop clinging on to everything we can get and start sharing it, giving it away, celebrating God's generosity by being generous ourselves. And that attractiveness is one of the things that draws other people in. So now let me show you this graphic. We've shown this to you before in different times. We love shapes here at City Church. We love triangles in particular. There's something very Trinitarian about a triangle, of course. And so this tells you what does it mean that we say joining God as family on mission for the renewal of all things. That's what this is about. This is the whole, like, this is really, you could, in, in some senses, you say, this is our series right here of our values. What are we doing? We're going up and in and out. We're going, we're going up, right? Saying we're joining God. This is the apostles' teaching. We're gathering together every Sabbath to worship together, to learn more about who God is. And then we're going in, right? We're going in, which actually that's incorrect there, just so you know. The inn is on the other side as family on mission. We did that on the fly this morning, and it got mixed up. All right. And so, but it is the end saying, we're going to be family on mission. So we're going, to, we're going to join a DNA group here in the fall. And I encourage you to do that. If you're not already plugged in, do that. That's the way you really drop in. Discipleship, nurture, apply, DNA there. And so we're going to be in together on mission together. Why? So that for the renewal of all things out. Like not just that we would have our marriages and our singleness and our friendships and our finances and our work renewed, but then we might renew the city. You want in on that? You want to be part of that? The City Church Eastside? City Church Eastside has the potential to have its best years ahead of us. I know there's a lot going on in our culture and our nation. Um, and I know how hard, again, the pandemic was. And I know how hard individually your stories are and what's going on right now. I feel stressed with you right now. But I want you to know that, that if we can commit ourselves to, to devoted to the right things, to sacrifice, we're willing to do that because we trust God and his generosity is for us and he's not against us. That we can have joy and unity and that we can be an outward-facing church. 